Are you ready? Hey, everybody. Hey, folks. Hello, everybody. People in the back. Welcome, everybody. Welcome to the inner loop. Welcome, everybody. Welcome to the inner loop. Without further ado. Without further ado. Okay, so without further ado, we're going to get started. We should get started. We're yeah. Rambling. I'm rambling. We're, we're, we're going to get started. Welcome to the Inner Loop Radio. I'm Rachel Koontz. And I'm Courtney Sexton. Thank you for joining us. If you haven't already, please remember to subscribe to our podcast, leave us a review, and check out our website at theinnerlooplit.org. For any new listeners out there here on The Inner Loop Radio, we delve into all things creative writing, whether that be inspiration or craft, publishing or editing, how to make a living, or just how we all sit down each day in front of an empty page. We invite friends and local writers onto the show to talk about their writing journey, what inspires them, or just to delve deeper into craft. Lately on the show, we've been talking a lot about the practical aspects of writing. We've talked about self-promotion, magazine publishing and submissions, grant writing, and other ways to turn writing into a paying gig. So on today's show, I thought we'd get philosophical. You know, I love that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so yeah, I feel like on the last show court, we were talking about ways to make money from writing and you sort of were taking the position of money poisons art. I don't um, remember. I I don't recall. I plead the fifth on that. (laughs) (laughs) That didn't happen. I don't, I don't remember that. Uh, I do feel like that's, you know, I feel like writers struggle with Definitely. Um, probably all artists struggle with how to, um, you know, sell their art and do their art at the same time. Um, but this question really does make me wonder, you know, why do we publish at all? Um, certainly for the three people who read anything that any one of us <laughs> writes, <laughs> obviously. Um, no, I mean, like, I think we so true. Nobody reads literary magazines, and yet we're all like clamoring for the literary magazine publication. True. Well, I think a lot of like the magazine element is like a step to the next thing, right? Because like, if your mm. goal is to have a book, then it's like, oh, That's I need to point. like get things out there, and like the book is a little bit more esoteric I think um esoteric yeah like from a philosophical (laughs) standpoint (laughs) um I was thinking about this though because uh I had a conversation with my mom recently I was doing a paid gig uh where I was writing poems on demand um at an event it was Mm. like a cool a fundraising event and I was a an artist for sale kind of thing and I had never really I've done it before I you know always enjoy it it's kind of like a good way to get the creative juices flowing and kind of like experience it with other people at the same time um but I had never really thought about how other people perceive it and my mom was like oh why would you do that Mm. (laughs) and to her it was akin to like being a jester or Hmm. um you know, the kind of paid entertainment. Um, ah, interesting. Which 
I think artists and musicians and writers have have historically struggled with that. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I wonder if like it's a young writer thing or is this something that we struggle with throughout our entire writing careers? But I feel like I remember in the MFA, I had fellow writers at the workshop table who were saying, you know, when people mentioned or talked about like possibly publishing their piece, they're like, I don't care about publication. Right, right. I don't care about, you know. Um, and my mentor, Vijay, was like, bullshit. All writers <laughs> care about publication. Everyone cares. <laughs> all, all you're doing is writing to be published because being published means being read. And you're writing to be read, right? But how do you then, but then the money comes in because publishing is a business. Is right? it? So for who? How do you like make a business out of art? You're making a lot of faces. <laughs> I was you're making a lot of sad faces. Well <laughs> it's funny because like, you know Are you sad? <laughs> Um, I am sad because I think like, yeah, okay, publishing is a business, but for who, like the writers rarely are making a lot of money on that end of things, um, unless you're like, you know, really far down the road. Um, I mean, like we've talked about this before, right? Part of it is also ego. You know, we write because we have ego and Mm -hmm. we also write because creating art is payment in and of itself. A lot of the yeah. time you know so yeah. there's I think there's and ego gets a bad bad rap I feel like you you can underestimate the importance of ego because we if we didn't have ego we wouldn't be writing at all and totally it just happens to make something beautiful it's a lovely side effect yeah. <laughs> I, I I agree I agree <laughs> um I I like that I like that ego we should we should have a whole episode I think based on ego, just ego yeah yeah. <laughs> Who is the most egotistical writer publishing today? <laughs> All right. I feel like we should bring our guest in and get more on this subject uh, as he's someone who really straddles the line between art and commerce. Uh, coming up, we hear from this month's Authors Corner Spotlight, Austin Ross. Stay tuned. Gather. Gather. <laughs> Gather, please. Um, you can gather in. Gather around, gather around for the second half. And we're going to get started. We're going to get started. We'll get started. We're officially getting started. Not teasing you this time. Welcome back to the Interloop Radio. We've been debating the necessity of commercializing art, and now we'd like to welcome Austin Ross, senior editor at HarperCollins and author of Gloria Patry from Malarkey Books, his debut novel and this month's Author's Corner Spotlight. Welcome, Austin. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, pleasure to be here. Great to have you on the show. Uh, you recently wrote an article for Publishers Weekly about your unique perspective on publishing as both an editor and a writer yourself. In it, you mentioned the, quote, balancing act between art and commerce. So tell us, how do you balance those two seemingly opposite forces? Uh, that's a great question. And I feel like there's two different answers, right? One is on the professional side as an editor, and one is on the creative side as a writer. So on the professional side, the balance between art and commerce is we need books that will sell because 
as you talked about before, publishing is a business ultimately. And that's true for the smallest indie press. You know, I don't care if you're Penguin Random House that seemingly has infinite amounts of money mm-hmm. or the smallest of the small. At a certain point, if books just aren't selling enough, it's going to hit the bottom line, right? So we need mm-hmm. books that sell, but the books also need to be good. Yes. Um, and so there's a balance as proposals come in of like, is this, you know, is this um, derivative? Is it adding something to its genre? Does it even understand what kind of book it wants to be or should be? Um, and so that element that on the professional like a side. Philosophical question. Yeah, it is. <laughs> it's very philosophical. Yeah, <laughs> very philosophical, but also very practical, right? Um, so that's on the professional side, and that, a lot of that is examining things like, hey, what kind of books are selling right now? What are readers interested in? Um, what books aren't selling well? You know, uh, and then examining those sorts of genres, those sorts of books, and then placing that kind of framework over the proposals that come in, but then also evaluating them of like, is this a good book, right? Uh, is the writing good enough? You know, does, is, is it intriguing? Is the, is the hook um, sort of focused enough for a, mm-hmm. an average reader to pick up and want to actually pay $30 for, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, but then on the writing side, that balance between art and commerce, it's a little bit like, for me anyway, a little bit less, much, much less stringent, I would say, in that I'm not all that concerned as I'm writing of like, hey, is this going to sell? There's always that question, right? You were talking about, you know, writers, we all write for publication, right? We want people to read the things that we're writing. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, we may as well just keep a journal, right? right. Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so there's always, hey, there's always that thing in the back of my mind of like, is this, does this have some sort of chance somewhere, wh- whether that's at a literary magazine? that 10 people might read or, you know, it doesn't have promise for a big publisher to take on or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but if I want to write it, you know, I'll, I just kind of want to write it, you know, and then so I'll figure it out like, later on, you know? <laughs> so. I feel like I have to dig into this question a little bit more because uh, I like a couple of years ago, finished a book and then I went into publishing mode and I was thinking about how do I sell this? I was writing the aging query and, getting the elevator pitch, which was a horrifying, excruciating process. Um, and then, but then when I, it was time to go back to writing, I found it so hard to write because then I was like, all of that was in my head. And I was like, you know, what's something that's going to sell? What's something that's like in the general zeitgeist? That's you were just gonna speak in business to... mode. Yes, exactly. So I need to know, Austin, <laughs> <laughs> how do you like backtrack out of that frame of mind when it's time to be creative like how do you block out those questions and those thoughts of like is you know all the things that you were just talking about as an editor like it must be even harder for you because you actually do that as your job on a daily basis so how do you block it out long enough to let the creative juices flow yeah um that's that's a great question that's you know maybe the million dollar question everybody wants to know (laughs) like there's (laughs) well is my book gonna sell you know (laughs) Um, but I think, so part of it is, so I work exclusively in nonfiction at the moment, would love to eventually at some point move over to fiction professionally, like in editing and publishing. So I'm, that is helpful to me right now in that those worlds are pretty distinct of like, I'm, I mainly write fiction. I'll write like creative nonfiction, but we're not really taking on a whole ton of like lyrical essays, for example, you know what I mean? Um, it's more like it's like history and like those sorts of books, right? So it's a very mm-hmm. different metric that I'm using to analyze these things. But 
what's helpful is, you know, if you remember the whole DOJ case against Penguin Random House uh, that happened in, here in DC, right? Um, last year, I guess. And there was a, I was, re I remember reading all of these court transcripts just because it's fascinating to me and I'm a nerd in that way. Uh, and I remember Very this one, I forget his name. Yes, <laughs> but I forget his name exactly. But this one, you know, big wig publishing executive was talking about um, where the crawdads sing. And there's a whole mm -hmm. lawsuit that's off to one side, right? But like this, this book came in, nobody really knew who Delia Owens was. He passed on that book. And so I always see these books that the ones that really take off, like no one, it's a surprise to everyone, right? Hmm. And so there are certain genres of books that we think will do pretty well, but like, I feel like when it comes to the big, massive successes, it's, it's always kind of a surprise. And so hmm. to write, for me to write toward something that I think is going to sell is essentially chasing a trend that will hmm. pass in by the time I'm done with the book, right? Um, especially with fiction, you know, if I'm chasing like, let's say, I don't know, college books, like, you know, um, campus novels or whatever are big right now, because Brandon Taylor wrote one. Um, I'm going to write a campus novel by the time I'm done and it's out, that's going to be like five years down the line yeah. and people are going to be into something else. You know what I mean? So, so Austin, um, and so, are, yes. are, are Birkenstocks trendy or classic is what, is what I'm trying to figure out here. Maybe both. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> No, that's a really interesting point, though, about like the sleepers, right? Because there's some commonality in the thing that we all find beautiful or successful. And you can't really necessarily anticipate that until it comes to be. Right. It's yes. so ironic, though, because uh, like yeah. everything that Austin was describing was trying to predict, you know, what's going to sell yeah. what, you know, this framework of sellability. And then it turns out the really good ones are unpredictable. <laughs> yeah. And that happens occasionally. That doesn't always happen. Like there is, right. there are definitely projects where we're like, I'm pretty sure this is going to do well. And sometimes that doesn't happen. Right. Sometimes we yeah. will pay a lot of money for a book and it completely tanks mm -hmm. and that's no good, you know, but sometimes we pay a very small amount for a book that surprises us, you know? Mm -hmm. um, but I think just write, write what interests you. I always tell people with reading too, like read into your interests. Like don't, don't bother like trying to follow some curriculum. Like you have to read all the Pulitzer Prize winners. It's like, read what interests you. The fact that you're reading at all is great, you know? <laughs> and the same thing with writing, like write what interests you because that is what makes you unique. And so whatever it is, your approach is going to make it its own thing that no one else could do. Yeah, yeah I really love that. That's good advice. So your journey to publishing your debut novel, Gloria Patry, uh, it had its ups and downs, uh, which I've heard a couple versions of this story, but you have an agent horror story, which I feel like our listeners need to hear. Yes. Um, so I'll preface this by saying like, legitimately, if you want to go, I mean, obviously if you want to go big publishing, like you, you do need an agent. Um, and agents are great by and large, like some are not great. So I'll preface that, this story with that, you know, um, <laughs> But so the, I had been writing versions of this novel for 15 or 20 years or so, just failed drafts, 30, 40,000 words or so. And then I was like, this just isn't working. And in 2019, I went to Breadloaf, the Breadloaf Writers Conference. And as part of that conference, uh, you can, if you want, set up two 10-minute meetings with agents or editors. There's, you know, all, from all kinds of publishing houses across the country. And you can ask them questions about the industry, you know, if you want to network for a job, if you just want to 
you know, hear their perspective on things, that's all great. Um, but most people will try to meet with agents and pitch whatever book they're working on. So when I got there, I was like, I don't really have, you know, I don't have a short story collection. I have short stories, but I don't really know. I don't have enough for a collection. But I have this book I've been working on. So I like, I was just kind of thinking about it before this meeting of like, what can I pitch him? And this idea came to me of like reframing the book into this, in this new way. So I pitched it to this guy and uh, he was very excited about it. His eyes lit up. He's like, oh, I have a, really have a feeling about this. Do you have any sample material? So I gave him a story. He emailed me two hours later and said, I, I really like the story. Really looking forward to seeing the novel when it's ready. Um, and so I, I was like, okay, I got to buckle down and finish this thing. So I got up early each morning for about a year and a half and wrote probably not, not full drafts, like the first draft I wrote and then threw away to start it over because I knew kind of what the book was at that point. Um, but I wrote probably 15 or so drafts and then sent it off to him when it was finally ready. And he, he responded, he responded in wow. minutes. <laughs> We're just, yes. sorry, so he, listeners, <laughs> Courtney and I are shaking our heads. Our heads. <laughs> that, that well, I was like, this is my shot, right? You know, I was like, I'm not, I'm not giving up my shot, giving away my shot, you know? Um, so he emailed me back within minutes after I sent him the book. And he said, I'm looking forward to reading this. I'm a little buried right now, but I'll do my best to get back to you soon. And then a couple of weeks passed and I didn't hear anything from him. So I emailed him back. I was like, hey, do you have a time frame of like when you might be doing the you know, getting to this book? Didn't hear anything. A couple of months passed. I emailed him again. Um, and then I, I sort of like would check my spam folder religiously. Oh, like, oh, just no. e each day, just be like, <laughs> did it go in here? Like, is it over there? Like, am I somehow missing it? Uh, and then it took, it really kind of took me probably nine months to a year to kind of realize in my soul, like what had yeah. happened. Like to this guy had completely yeah. ghosted, ghosted me. Yes. He ghosted you. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> That's the worst. Oh my God. Uh, but but it, it, honestly, like it has been helpful in one sense and like, I'm, I've always thought this, but that just reinforced significantly for me in my professional life. If I solicit work from someone, it requires a response of some kind, even if it's mm -hmm. just like not yeah. for me, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that's been helpful, I think. But if, if I'm looking for a silver lining of some kind, you know, but. I would say I would say that like this story is is horrifying, but it's surprisingly common. I had a slightly yeah. similar experience where an agent reached out to me based on a story you read of mine. And he was super interested and asked for the whole thing. And I sent him the whole thing. And then he was like, I can't sell this book. And I'm like, the essay is like the main part of the book. How did you not know immediately that you couldn't sell it? <laughs> you know? And it was like all of this excitement, um, <laughs> getting attention from an agent and then just nothing. You get nothing. It out builds of it. up. You're like, this is my shot. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, yeah. I finally yeah. got my, my yeah. shot, but no. And then it's crushing when it's just like, nah, I guess it wasn't. No. My shot. Yeah. But then, but then, the we're not like getting to the final arc of the story where like it happens. Yeah, exactly. Right? Yeah, that's true. So there is I, something about the magic of the art. Exactly, right? Court. And like, yeah. um, no, but it did make me wonder if this after this experience with the agent, it made me wonder to myself: Do I really need an agent? Maybe I should publish with an independent press. So tell tell us how you came to that decision. Um, yeah, so I, after, after I kind of realized what was happening with this particular agent, and he was not going to get back to me. I was like, okay, I have a couple of choices. Because really in the back of my mind, the question was, okay, this novel that I sent him must have been so bad that he <laughs> cannot 
like respond to me at all, you know? (laughs) So I had two choices here in front of me. I could either throw it away and move on to something else, or I could keep going and try, you know, other agents, maybe some smaller presses, things like that. So I was like, after a while, I went back through and reread it. I was like, I do believe in this book enough to keep going. So I queried a bunch of other agents and that was a whole process. Took a couple of years to realize, I'm not sure that that's going to necessarily pan out with this particular book. Um, got some, if you've ever queried, you probably have gotten the nicest feedback, the most beautiful feedback from these agents that say like, oh, this is a beautiful book. I really enjoyed reading it, but it's a no, you know? (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. And it's just like, ah, like it's one of those rejections where you're reading it and first you're like, is this an acceptance? But no, it's not. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I know they pull the rug out from under you. Um, And so then I was like, you know, submitting it to some smaller presses. And at this point I was like, I believe in this book enough to like I'll mm. take kind of whoever wants to publish this book, basically, mm. um, and was lucky enough that Malarkey Books was open for submissions at the time, and they they put out you know really really great books all the time, and um, was thrilled that I placed it there with a you know it's a smaller press than I had initially anticipated, right? From that first mm. agent meeting, I was you know already practicing my National Book Award acceptance speech, <laughs> but, <laughs> <laughs> but <laughs> always be prepared. But I'm thrilled it's out there, so yeah, you know. So you talk about uh, this process helping you really believe in the book. Uh, so I want to know, like, tell us about the book itself, what, it, what it's about and what the premise is. Yes. Yeah, so um, a lot of it kind of stems from elements of my childhood. So it's uh, there's sort of semi-based, semi, you know, related to a family that I knew growing up, um, but then other elements of my childhood as well. And so that was really the initial kind of impetus of writing this book was I wanted to write a book about this particular family that was very isolationist um, and kind of extremist in their views. And it was a very quiet novel, um, mm. which I love. I love reading those books. But essentially, I, I realized as I tried to write it several times over like a decade that I don't really write those kinds of books well. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and so I was like, I need something to happen here. You know, I need some plot going on. Um, and so then Really, when I went to Breadloaf, I came up with this idea of like, well, where does this isolationist extremist view, where does it lead? Mm. And so I, I sort of paired it with this idea, of, you know, 2019, you could see already, I mean, really from the 90s, you could see what was happening with these militia extremist groups, like Proud Boys and Oath Keepers kind of mm-hmm. on the rise. And so I was like, what if this militia group gets involved somehow, you know? Mm. So I sort of melded these two ideas together and that it kind of gave the book the book this new propulsion to it um, that allowed me to write it a lot more quickly, basically, um, and and kind of have I think have more fun writing it than I would have otherwise. But like I said, those books are great. But I, I it was an interesting learning experience. Like I'm not that kind of writer, so yeah, yeah, interesting. Well, we would love to hear an excerpt from the book. Sure. Yeah, I have it here. Um, so this part of the book is let me introduce it because you kind of need a little bit of context so there's a character named andrew cook who is an old childhood friend of this family and he has gotten involved again sort of reintroduced himself to the son of this family who is now involved with this militia group and they have sort of been given their um initiation uh marching orders essentially to be part of this group so Mm -hmm. They'd already planned the method they'd use. Kerosene-soaked kitchen towels in the gas tank. Whole thing should go up in flames, assuming the plan worked. 
They had, in the weeks prior, found Melville's address and scoped the place out after following him home from work one day. No civil servant should be driving a Mazda, Big Boy said, when they reported back. Melville's place was a ranch style in a little housing development near Ferguson Park. Andrew and Solomon decided that one of them, after setting the fire, would cut across the field and meet on the opposite side, where the other would be waiting in the idling truck. Solomon had insisted they let the choice of who remained in the truck and who set the fire be truly objective. It was a decision only the universe could make. He plucked two green beans from Big Boy's garden, snapped one in half, and evened them in his hand so they appeared to be the same height. Andrew picked the short bean. He would be the one who would light the fire, who would run across the field. It was getting late now. The sun was well on its way, and they set off, grabbing a few burgers for the road as they went. Andrew's stomach clenched with excitement and anxiety. He hadn't felt this way since Iraq. There was something about deciding in your heart to commit violence that galvanized the soul. It set you on a path, put your feet on solid ground. Moral clarity was often preceded by definite choice, Andrew had found. You choose to do something and then feel good or bad about it later. Push to one side any lingering questions and just follow through with the task. Then you're able to see things more clearly. Melville's house came up quicker than he thought. Pull up a little bit, Andrew said, pointing down the street. I want to get some distance. In his backpack, Andrew had a small sealed can of kerosene, two handfuls of dry kitchen towels, a lighter, and a length of rubber hose. Cars didn't explode with a full tank. He'd learned that during the war. A tank that was almost empty would build up such pressure from the heat that it'd blow like it was nothing at all. The lights were on in Melville's house, and voices carried from what Andrew guessed was the kitchen or living room. From the cadence and pitch of the voices, it sounded like Melville's family was having some sort of game night. Andrew knelt beside the Mazda's gas tank, retrieved from his bag the length of rubber hose, inserted it into the tank, and sucked out a good portion of the fuel, which he spit onto the cracked drive driveway. Then he took two of the kitchen towels, soaked them in the kerosene, and braided them together. He used his monogrammed knife to push them into the tank, leaving a few inches hanging out, gathered all the disparate elements into his backpack, and lit the exposed end of the towels, made his way quickly across the street. He had just passed beyond the sidewalk, and into the field when he heard behind him the voice of a teenage girl. Dad? Dad? He looked and saw what must be one of Melville's daughters rushing toward the car, reaching out her hand to pull the towel from the gas tank, when the whole thing exploded. Explosions were never a pluming fireball, like you'd see in a movie, extending endlessly up into the sky. They were more lumbering sorts of things, driven by the mechanics of the physical world. Metal and flame burst outward, and the girl was sent backward by the force of the blast. She landed on her back on the lawn. Andrew thought he could hear her gasping for breath. In the light of the fire, she twitched as Melville and the rest of his family emerged from their home. Andrew ducked behind a tree. When they called an ambulance, Andrew turned and walked, praying that no one would see him in the dark, would call to him. When enough distance was achieved between him and the burning car, he broke into a run across the field. Solomon waited for him on the other side of a row of trees. You could see that one on the moon, he said. They sped off. What's the matter, Solomon said. It was beautiful, man. There was a girl, Andrew said. She got hurt, I think. I don't know. Solomon shrugged as he drove. Hurt's not dead, he said. Hurt's not dead. Andrew thought about that all night as they returned. Big Boy greeted them happily with many drinks. Andrew got very drunk to forget about the girl, about her gasps for air, but his sleep was still punctuated by images of her lying on the grass, wheezing. He dreamt also of the gasping, dying Iraqi boy on the other side of the world. The last thing that poor boy had ever seen was the face of his oppressor, Andrew's own face, leaning over him 
and doing nothing at all to stop his drift into the unknown world. I love I love that depiction of violence as this like alluring thing because of the finality of it, but then it's not it's never as like clear cut as you know you think it's gonna be something like the way you were describing the explosion. Yeah, Thank it's you. like that idea of just making the decision, right? Like you always feel better once you've made a decision and then we logic around these things in our brain. We're like, yeah, mm -hmm. this is the right thing. This is the just thing. Um, thinking we can push those feelings down, but. That's true, yeah. <laughs> oh, that was awesome. Well, this has been such a great discussion. Uh, you can find out more about Austin, read more interviews and articles, and buy his book, Gloria Patry, on our website, theinnerlooplit.org slash Authors Corner. You can also catch him at Kramer's Books in conversation with Andrew Britannia on September 6th, but we're not going to let Austin go just yet. Austin, are you up for some trivia? Sure, let's do it. Great. Well, up next, um, if you write for only a few hours a day, you might still be considered a full-time writer. Find out why after our break. Welcome back to the Interloop Radio. We turn now to a little trivia. Now, whether in publishing mode or deep into creativity, writers are known for struggling with productivity. What is it they say? If you need to move a couch, call a writer. We basically do. We basically do anything in our power to avoid writing. So true. And it feels like we are never doing enough. So I thought we'd look at productivity statistics in other industries to comfort ourselves. Okay, Courtney, mm -hmm. Austin, you ready for some trivia? This is striking yeah. a nerve. I'm, I, I've I been know. having this like productivity crisis lately. Yeah, so, exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Okay. Um, all right. So I'm going to start with some multiple choice. How many hours a day is the average in-office employee productive? A, around three hours. Yes. B, around five hours. C, around seven hours. I'm going to go with A. I think A. Correct. In office. Yeah. yeah. Correct. Research conducted by Voucher Cloud showed the average office worker is only productive for two hours and 23 minutes each but day. But what does that tell you? If you still get the job done, then we don't need to be doing it. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Don't <laughs> even get much. me started on that bag of worms, Courtney. <laughs> I am anti capitalism rage. Okay. We'll start coming out. <laughs> okay, so same question, but for freelancers. How many hours per day on average is a freelancer productive? Uh, 
three hours, five hours, or seven hours? I would say like triple. I would say seven. I was going to say 24 hours. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> All the hours. Yeah. All the hours. Good instinct. It is seven hours. According to uh, Yahoo Finance, uh, the typical freelancer logs about 36 hours per week. And if you divide that by five days, which we all know freelancers work more than that, uh, it comes out to about seven hours per day. So I'm just saying that if you only write two hours and 23 minutes a day, you're basically a full-time writer. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. All right. Here we go. Fill in the blank. The average office worker is interrupted every blank minutes and needs blank minutes to refocus on their task. Oh, I've heard this one before and I don't remember. I'm going to say 10 and 30 is my... 10 and 30. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Gosh, Austin. Yeah. I'm go 20, maybe just 20, 20. I don't know. 20, 20. They yeah. get interrupted every 20 minutes yeah. and then it takes them another 20 minutes to get yeah. back on, on their task. Which I guess would mean they're never productive again. According to the Washington Post, researchers found that the typical office worker is interrupted or switches tasks on average every three minutes and five seconds. Holy, wow, yeah. And it can take 23 minutes and 15 seconds to get back to where they left off. So interruption is a funny thing, right? Because it's like, is it being interrupted by an actual coworker? Or is it like, I'm interrupted because I'm switching between 30 tabs? And yeah, that I'm I think it includes now. like getting an email, yeah. getting a text, getting a yeah. phone call, all those things. For sure. Uh, yeah. You guys, you guys have seen The Shining, I assume? Yes. Yes. Um, that scene where his wife interrupts him and he's just like, it's going to take time to get back to where I was. Yeah. <laughs> I think about that every time my children run in or something. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. I'm working and my partner comes home and walks in yes. and just starts unloading everything. And I'm like, I'm not going to even listen. I'm yeah. staying in my desk. Yes. <laughs> okay. 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 So I figured we'd uh, do a couple rapid true or false. Okay. Okay. True or false. You guys are really good at these. I thought I tested these out on a, on a test audience and they were shocked by the mm. numbers, but you guys are on it. All right. Uh, true or false. Working for home, from home increases worker productivity. I, I think we have recently found that to be true, but I could be. I feel like I, well, and here's the question is, cause I, I'm, I know that initially, so I work from home. I think I'm more productive, but um, I know that initially during the pandemic, when everybody was working from home, everybody was like, oh, everybody's so much more productive. But now, yeah. now that people are mm -hmm. somehow returning, mandating return to office, they're like, oh, you're not as productive. So now I'm like, is that driven? What are these studies driven by? You know, right. <laughs> so I'm not sure. Maybe I'm, the anti-capitalism rage is catching. Everybody's like, fuck <laughs> this. <laughs> Also, is it like when we're we're talking statistics here? Is it like people who have always worked from home versus those who like do in the mm. don't? You okay, know, you're I, digging in too deep. You're digging in too deep. I forgot Courtney's we're a philosophical, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's my research brain. Right. I'm like for the purposes no. of this quiz, the answer is true. Okay, all right. A study okay. from Stanford University showed that working from home increased productivity by 13. percent I okay. feel like it's like way higher if you're only working two hours a day in the office. You know what I'm saying? Well, yeah. And I'm also like motivated because when I'm at home, I'm like, oh, I'm here. I want to do other shit. So let me get done when I need to get done. Yeah, it's true. All right. True or false. Multitasking is more efficient than single tasking. No, I don't. Yeah, I don't think. I feel like that's not true. False. <laughs> 
Yeah. According to Forbes, research shows multitasking employees experience a 40% drop in productivity. Multitasking provides the sensation of accomplishment. I think we can all get on board with that as writers. Uh, but in fact, it's unproductive. Uh, and yeah, every time you switch tasks, you actually lose a little bit of your power to focus that day. Yeah, that's what that's what we said. Right? Yeah, but I feel like it's really interesting because this article pointed out a couple of things. So when you front load the day with a bunch of menial tasks that you want to get out of the way so that you yeah. can focus on a, an important task, you're actually doing yourself a disservice because mm -hmm. the more you switch tasks, the less you're able to focus. To focus. So by the time you get okay. to the end of the day, you can't focus on the big task. Even though yeah. you feel like you're like, look at all the things I did. Yeah, mm -hmm. I'm so accomplished. Yeah. I got so much done. But you really screwed yourself over, <laughs> listeners. <laughs> that means you should write in the morning like Austin. <laughs> I think so. I've always heard the phrase. I forget where it even came from now. It's going to sound weird, but eat the frog. Have you ever heard that phrase? No. From you. From, uh, did I say it? Maybe I did. <laughs> it's very possible. But the phrase essentially is like, do the thing that you most dread or like are not looking forward to first thing. So then you can, or the thing that requires the most concentration could be writing it could be yes sending yeah. an email that you've been dreading for a week or whatever mm. do that first thing so then it's just done you can celebrate the rest of the day you know yep yeah love that love that all right last one true or false exercise increases productivity true I think so true according to brookings exercise makes people very happy only sex makes people happier and the happier you are, That's the more productive exercise. you can be. It's like double. It's well, I'm just saying, like, happiness. instead of working out on your lunch break, maybe you could do something yeah. even funner. <laughs> but, like, do you have to be working from home to do that? Or <laughs> dealer's choice? <laughs> uh, that concludes my trivia for the evening. Thank you, Austin, so much for being on the show and playing with us. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. This has been so much fun. Yeah, it's so great. And I'm glad you reminded us to eat the frogs as well. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> eat the frog, everyone. Eat the frog. That's our show. We'll be back next Monday with our Just Checking In series, where we give our writer friends a call to hear how their writing lives are going. If you want to learn more about The Inner Loop and all of our programming, visit us at theinnerlooplit.org. And you can also donate there to support us and local literature. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at The Inner Loop Lit. Today's episode was produced by me, Rachel Kuntz. Our theme music is by Andrew Logan, and our technical advisor is James Skinner. Thanks again to Austin Ross for joining us on the show. And if you enjoyed today's episode, set aside 10 minutes a day to meditate on your gratitude. Or you could leave us a review, which would be better. Such as... <laughs> 30 minutes spent listening to the Interloop Radio results in four extra hours of productivity. It's a no-brainer. I want to know where you're getting these metrics, but I'll buy it. I made that one up. I'll one buy it. <laughs> <laughs> um, please don't forget to subscribe. Subscribe. Subscribe so you can get inspired, get focused, and get lit on the Interloop Radio. Happy writing. Right on. <laughs> <laughs>